This podcast contains swear words and two brothers discussing how to make their behavior fit their beliefs. It seems polite to warn you. You and I will disagree. I'm not you. What's good for you is not good for me. I'm talking philosophically. What's good for you and me? I'm talking Welcome to Philosophically Sound, where we explore the music people like and learn to love the music and people we explore. I'm Tony, brother of Gus, son of Mick, Renaissance Jesus lookalike, daily meditator, dangerously creative chef, improviser of full-length musicals, and dedicated joyful teacher. And I'm Gus often described as Tony's cooler younger brother, mm-hmm. a drummer by name, an optimist by trade, and a punk rocker by night. I'm an IPA-drinking, fun-loving, snowboarding Colorado surfer who can't seem to escape the spell of corporate money. It's a sexy spell. <laughs> and today we have a special guest, our first guest on the Philosophically Sound show. Would you like to introduce yourself? I am, first of all, honored to be your parent, both of your parent, is, uh, and my name is Mick, and I think I can best be described as, beyond being the parent of these two fine men, as an old guy. <laughs> <laughs> right on, right on. Welcome. Today we're exploring Jimi Hendrix and the song One Rainy Wish, but first, let's reflect about what we talked about last episode. Using different language to change our behavior is a big theme of this show. And last episode, we were intrigued by the idea that what's hard might just be time-consuming. Is it hard, or is it just time-consuming? Here, I think specifically of musical skill. Playing piano might seem really hard, but of course, if you practice day after day, a couple years later, you're really good at playing the things you want to play, and then it's not hard anymore. So was it ever hard to begin with, or was it just time-consuming to get where you wanted to go? Um, Where I notice this showing up the most in my life is I'm currently potty training my two-year-old child. And potty training is not exactly hard. We talk about, we talk to our child a lot about how to, just thinking like, do you have to pee? Do you have to poop? We just say the words, we teach him about it. And then we take him into the potty. He sits down and he pees. We're like, yeah, <laughs> Success. But then other times, you might have other friends over at the house and you're focused on those friends and you're not paying total attention to your child and he pees in his underwear and you're like, ah, potty training is so hard. But really it's like, time-consuming, attention-consuming almost. Mm. I need to pay attention to how much liquid he's taken in, to how long it's been since the last pee, so that we can really make it, you know, successful and easy. Yeah, that uh, 
I still have trouble Pardon not me. peeing my pants sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> takes a lot of focus. Takes a lot right? of focus. <laughs> but uh, but uh, so I I I don't know if I have a great example, but I have started using the words. To, or like I've talked to a lot of people about it. I'm like, cool. Someone says something's hard. I was like, is it hard or just time consuming? And How did they uh, respond to that? I think usually people are like, okay, okay kind of interesting. But what I will share is I was at this uh, big thing for my company. They have all these guest speakers. And there's this speaker named Brian Kite who uh, went to Worcester University, which is a rival school of Wittenberg. And uh, now you played football, motivational speaker guy. But his point uh, was that, oh, what he said, he, it was something about time, but saying like, oh, I don't have time to mm. help you. And he's like, you can never say you don't have time. You have the time, but you've chosen to do something else with it. There's priorities to be considered, obviously. Indeed. Right. And and I'm just going to say this, too. Um, Since we're talking about words and terms to use, uh, instead of hard, I prefer difficult. Oh, okay. Um, And and then instead of uh, time... Maybe we should not think of it in a temporal sense, but but rather more of a commitment sense, you know? Yeah. All right. I, I think you can see that uh, maybe Tony and Gus get a little of their philosophical thinking from their old man. Absolutely. And then actually, I didn't even write this in the outline, but another reason we wanted to talk to you is because a thing we keep reflecting on this season is how musicians are influenced by other musicians and how they sometimes give credit for that influence and sometimes they don't give credit for that influence. And we are really interested in exploring how the hell are we influenced by you, obviously, and your Mm -hmm. taste in music. And that kind of takes us into the Jimi Hendrix part of today's show. But I'm I'm interested too in, um, you prefer difficult, the word, to hard. Why is that? Can you say more about that? Hard is maybe a little bit freighted with I'm not enjoying this. Ah, yeah, yeah. It's hard. I'm not going to like it. Okay. <laughs> Whereas difficult kind of gives a sense of challenge to it, you know? And are you interested in that challenge? That, then you can start thinking like that. Are you like, committed and of to course that you're, Yeah, yeah. Are, are you interested and therefore will you be committed? Like you are with um, potty training your son. We are committed to potty training our son, that is for sure. And, right? and, and you know, you need to ascertain whether he's committed to that right now or he's yeah. just enjoying the attention. And, and you know, it's, it, 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 it is complicated. It is complicated. So as, as you have lectured, retaught me, um, the terms we use are important. They are important. Who, who was, since we're talking about potty training, who was better? Me or Tony? <laughs> well, you, you, you're the younger brother, the, the often described as the cooler younger brother. But, but um, yeah, and typically you were, a, you were able to do things sooner than Tony was. And, and sooner, mm. does that mean better? No, but, but it means it wasn't as difficult for you. <laughs> okay. Now, maybe part of or that us. was I had, I had a coach in Tony. Maybe he right. was helping. Right, or you, me. Had, you had a model, basically. You, you had someone to emulate. Gotcha. You I'm, see that I'm, you know, peeing, standing up, and you're like, <laughs> yeah. I'm still peeing in my underwear. Like, what? <laughs> I need to be like this guy, right? Yeah. I mean, you guys basically, uh, through some oversight, probably on my part, you know, you didn't always have the sequence right on. <laughs> When when to finish <laughs> peeing and then shake it. Sometimes you would start shaking it before you were done, and that resulted in some need for cleanup. 
I'll, I'll put a warning on this episode about like, not only does it contain swear words and talking about behavioral change, but it also talks about shaking your penis after you pee. Yeah. So just, if you're ready for that, Which, listen on. Th- does that qualify as a dick joke? <laughs> <laughs> I think it does. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> you know what else is time consuming? Talking to Socrates. Yeah. So we've also been reading some philosophy recently. And one of the themes of Plato's dialogues, where Socrates is having some dialogue, some discussion with some other Greek, usually about defining a word. Um, A lot of times these conversations go on for a long time, reach no discernible, satisfactory conclusion. And then somebody says, well, I have to go. (laughs) Which is kind of hilarious. So I just read uh, Meno or Mino. I actually didn't look up how to pronounce it, but it's a thousands of years old text, and you so I don't mind. care as much you as mispronouncing living musicians. Yeah. So Socrates is trying to define virtue. Some Greek comes up to him and says, "Hey, Socrates, is virtue teachable? Can you teach it, or is it something innate to some humans?" And Socrates says, "Well, first, let me answer your question with a question: What is virtue? How do we even define this?" And of course, his buddy Mano cannot provide a satisfactory definition. And so Socrates tries to get him to give him a better definition by talking about shape. He says, listen, you have a square, you have a triangle, you have a circle. These are all shapes. Now, I can't just say, well, okay, all shapes have four sides. All shapes have a curvy line, right? What is the underlying form of all of these shapes? What defines a shape? And I actually talked to you and some of your fraternity brothers about this, Gus, yeah. which was which is a fun conversation. You talked to Greeks about that. Some Greeks, yeah, you had to talk to some <laughs> Greeks, exactly. Uh, Fiji. Socrates' answer is a boundary, a limit, that what shapes have in common is that they are defined. There's a limit to them. Mm. And then he says, okay, now you got the idea of what I'm after. What is the underlying form of virtue? We're not even going to get into that. They go through a lot of different definitions. And again, they don't reach a conclusion that satisfies (laughs) Socrates. Um, One of the other interesting things that it relates to having our father here, I think, is Socrates says he questions the teachability of virtue based on stories of other Greeks who are considered to be virtuous, other like leaders of the state who educate their children, who pay for the best education in mathematics and music and gymnastics and all these things. But everybody also seems to agree that those children are not as virtuous as their parents. Mm. And so Socrates is saying, well, if virtue is teachable, wouldn't these people who educated their children have taught them how to be virtuous? And it's an interesting consideration of like, how much power or control does the parent actually have over the character of their children. Sometimes I think, like, just colloquially out in the world, we blame parents for the behavior mm. of their children. And it's interesting to consider how, you know, valid a, a placement of blame that is. Wait, do you have any thoughts about that, Dad? This, this uh, rhymes a little bit with uh, discussion we've had a lot. Um, you know, what is, what is gifted to you and mm. what, what is learned by you with the help of some externality. Yeah, A parent or a teacher or whatever. And, uh, you know, in a scientific sense, this is the classic nature versus nurture debate. Absolutely. And, and And I think it's only fair to say that you, you lean on the nurture 
you, you believe stuff is more, anybody can learn anything. You know, if there's the, if there's the commitment and, and the proper instruction and, and all that stuff. And Gus, you're a trainer. And, and so you, yeah. you, you, have to, you have to take that um, at least initial assumption to heart before you try yeah. and train somebody. Uh, so, so, you know, me on the other hand, I do <laughs> think there are just some unchangeable... Some people are never, and this gets back to the time commitment thing, perhaps, yeah, but yeah. some people are never going to learn to sing, for example, that with, without, without totally corrupting the pitches and, and not getting the timing. And, and All right, I think you get where I'm coming from right now, and I hope that yeah. sort of adds to the... You the, might jive with Socrates. Yeah, you might jive with Socrates a little bit more and saying, like, yeah, you can't teach virtue to some people. You, you know? can't get blood from a turnip. Yeah. Yeah. So even more interesting than the virtue question in this dialogue, though, there's a quote from Socrates where he is extolling the worthiness of questioning what we know and of seeking knowledge. So I want to share this quote with you and also get your thoughts on this. Quote, I would fight to the last breath, both in word and deed, that we will be better men, brave instead of lazy, if we will believe, we must search for the things we do not know. If we will refuse to believe, it is impossible to find out what we do not know and that there is no point in looking." End quote. I'm really interested in this from the purpose of this show, to investigate why do I like what I like and how can I expand what I like, learn to like things I might have previously disliked, right? I'm interested in seeking out Seeking out the unknown, seeking out the unknown music that is out there and sort of elevating it to as worthy of the music that I already like. But what what do you think about this pursuit of knowledge, this pursuit of what you don't know? Valuable to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, I mean, <laughs> as, far, as far as I'm concerned, that is a core element of, of life. And, mm -hmm. in, you know, not just intellectual, but... but physical development you, you, you're if you're just coasting and you know maybe I'm, I'm taking it back to some some uh, pre-boomer uh, work ethic kind of mm, stuff but mm -hmm. if you're not trying to better yourself you, you're just you're just uh, a parasite <laughs> you're, you're, you're just okay. sucking on the sweet vine you know okay um, and uh, you, you got to take time to suck on that sweet vine but by the same token you know if you're not trying to better yourself and help help people and and help the you know the planet and stuff like that sorry man uh you know you, you're not my favorite person <laughs> yeah i i agree i feel like i'm a lifelong learner that's something i i enjoy always learning new things new pursuits but i'm gonna turn it to even just i, I like how you said both mind knowledge and sort of the physical side right push your own physical limitations wherever that threshold is for you and I was just skateboarding right before this. I'm 32, I'm too old to be skateboarding. And, and I show, I'll show you the video. I, uh, maybe we can post the video of me eating shit we on should, the skateboard. Yeah. Yep. You know, people, but like, <laughs> pavement hurts, man. But uh, I, have a, I have a chiropractor who I'm gonna go see. And, and I had a former chiropractor who might say, hey, don't skateboard. Whereas this guy says, yeah, you know, push your limits, find the limit. And, 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 you know, push that and see, like, where you can go. And then when you need help, come in and see me. <laughs> and so I, I really like that 
Uh, again, not just coasting, oh, I'm too old, I'm too whatever. No, find where that threshold is and, and be a bit uncomfortable and see what you can achieve. That seems pretty valuable to me. I like what you said about wherever your threshold is, yeah, right? Not necessarily thinking, okay, everybody needs to know about geometry, which Socrates might. <laughs> In the Greek days, like everyone knows about geometry, apparently, all, this, all these virtuous men. But yeah, find the threshold for you. What is it that you would like to push yourself on? What is it that you need to learn more about? That's going to be different for everybody, just like our preferences for music are different. And yeah. good to honor those differences while we're also all trying to encourage each other to, to grow, but, to push. And again, just to finish the thought in, in from Mick's point, if like you're not also trying to, to better sort of humanity or family, if you're doing everything just for you and your limits, yeah, screw you. But there's got to be a component of you know, greater good, I think, in there as well. It's nice if we can help each other to be better, yeah. right? I think. Definitely. That's what teaching is about. Yeah. And I really appreciate both you guys sort of sort of uh, clarifying the issue a little bit because I, I was passionate and, and pretty much dead set, <laughs> which almost sounds like, uh, well, I don't have an open mind. I, I, and I, I do strive to, uh, to, to understand that things are different nowadays. Back when I was a blue-collar boy trying to do a little uh, social uh, status changing and economic class changing and that kind of stuff. All right, I'm, I'm done. <laughs> I want to go to one of the questions right now for okay. you, Dad, because okay. you just mentioned, oh, it might have sounded like I don't have an open mind. Like a, <laughs> but I think I do consider you to be a person with an open mind. And I'm interested in relation to Jimi Hendrix. We're going to ask you a bunch of questions about you and music and Jimi right now okay. to try and get at, get at some, uh, some deeper truths here. The main event for me. So the first question, the main event for yeah. Mick Dominic. You're not going anywhere, buddy. We got a lot of questions for you. <laughs> Did listening to Jimmy make you more open-minded, do you think? I don't think so. Mm. You know, first hearing Hendrix and listening to Hendrix, I was receptive to it, yes, and I still think I would be, but it was mind-opening in a lot of ways. Listening was mind-opening. Yeah. But you already felt like you had... This openness in order to experience Absolutely. it. Yeah, you know, yeah. I was a kid. Yeah, you know, when I was I a first, kid, <laughs> I, I was in middle school, and and you know, mm. I, who in middle school doesn't have an open mind? Ah, that's an interesting <laughs> point. Yeah, I mean, that's where I formed formed a lot of my musical preferences and punk rock and stuff. Your life was in middle school. I yeah. feel like that's where you're kind of like forming your identity. A yeah, lot. exactly. But and, and and yeah, I guess you know the the flip side of that coin is a lot of people. After that age, uh, and maybe significantly after that age, but we become big word, big big word alert, sclerotic. You know, our, our brain is not as malleable anymore. Our 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 yeah. thoughts are not. You know, we kind of get set. That's where you need to take some psilocybin and open up those <laughs> pathways. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that interesting, right? That psilocybin might be... I read this whole book you recommended called How to Change Your Mind. Yeah, yeah. Where a reporter who has never tried any psychedelics deliberately tries a lot of them and tries to document what's happening to him and how it goes. How that whole uh, drug experience might be more useful for people older than it is for teenagers and 20-somethings doing it. Using hallucinogens, and they have a better word for it, 
uh, Michael Pollan, I believe, is the yeah, yeah, that's right. author and experimenter. But, uh, you know, to treat things like PTSD and so forth, you know, because you just get locked. In, a lot of people get locked into certain responses to, to stimuli yeah. that, that really isn't the best thing for them. Another question for you, my father. Why have you kept playing saxophone all these years? What do you dig about it? You know, and, and kind of like uh, the Socrates uh, anecdote you're telling, I need to, to reel it in a little bit and say, can we talk a little bit about what's the definition of music, really? You know, and bring it on, and bring it on. And you know, this is this is totally your domain, and and you know, I'm I'm only kind of a, uh, you know, I'm riding in the sidecar. I'm not driving the motorcycle, but but, but uh, <laughs> good imagery. It, it's like music is just a different way of thinking. I mean, music mm. <laughs> like hallucinogens, mm. I guess. You know, it 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 is a mind opener and, and it is a it allows you to remap some things and it, and it's a form of expression and a form of uh learning really that that is certainly not verbal. You know, it, it can be kind of mathematical, but but yeah, we're talking about Hendrix here now. I mean, that guy was able to to create and share and open minds with, you know, he's always talked about as a pioneer, and that's the the most famous thing about Jimi Hendrix, mm. you know. But but yeah, he used all the new electronic capabilities to to actually create music and and you know just paint these pictures. Yeah, I'm I'm very passionate about that. So so now let me Fuck get yeah. let, let me get back yeah. to the question that you, I can't remember exactly the question you asked. Why are you still playing saxophone? You've been yeah. playing saxophone so, for how long? Since middle school again? Since before right. middle school. I mean, you know, we back in that day they, they would uh, they would give you a chance to play an instrument, you know, in the fourth or fifth grade. Yeah, yeah. yeah fifth fifth for grade me. for horns, uh, for wind instruments, and fourth grade for violin and stuff but but uh yeah i don't know it just it, it it's a part of me kind of you know and you can talk about hendrix and i'm riffing here please feel free to cut the heck out oh, of this <laughs> but, but um i mean that guy when he picked up a guitar it was a way of life for him it, it was mm. more than you know you talk about commitment i mean he in the army he slept with his guitar and, yes. and he would walk around the barracks playing his guitar while he was doing his other duties. You know, I, yeah, let me do that with the left hand here instead. Of, <laughs> but, 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 uh, That's sick. Yeah, so I, I, I certainly was not that committed. But, but yeah, it was, it was something that just became part of me. And absolutely, your influence over us is so apparent through that answer. I think, you know, both Gus and I started playing saxophone in the fifth grade when they offered it, <laughs> yeah, mostly right. because we thought, well, dad plays saxophone. Let's pick up the saxophone. You know, you we talked in our first prelude episode about how you switched to drums after that. And, yeah. And yeah. But I think I think um, I wanted to play the saxophone because you were dad and Tony was. And I was like, well, they're not peeing their pants. So. <laughs> <laughs> so let me play. Too. I might as well play the saxophone. <laughs> Sorry. This is our best show yet. It's really good. <laughs> Got another question for you. How much money and time did you spend on music as a kid, young adult, compared to now? And I want to put this in context of other conversations Gus and I have had about we, we acknowledge that a lot of times music criticism and then even you know the casual listener thinks of a successful musician 
as a financially successful musician. So that word successful even has an implied financially after it, you know? And I'm also interested in how the choices I make about what to listen to, about where to spend money, affect what sort of music is well known and what sort of music I think is good. So kind of in that context, how did you spend money throughout your life on music? So, so uh, let, let's go back to the era, you know, that, that Hendrix was, was a dynamo during. And, um, you know, uh, music wasn't nearly so commodified as it is now. Everything becomes more commodified, more, more, more the man and, and, you know, more corporate and stuff like that. Yeah. And beyond that, of course, we didn't have computers. So, so the two main um, ways you could spend money on music was vinyl albums <laughs> and, yeah. and live concerts. Boom, that's it. And, and, okay. and, you know... How much of that would you say you did? I, yeah, and, you know, it's going to be hard for me to put a, um, yeah, no a numbers, quantity but, yeah, on yeah. that, but... but not a ton, uh, you know. Radio was free, and, radio and was free. you know that okay. was that was yeah, a big yeah, yeah. thing. And uh, you know, there's some great FM radio stations where I grew up. But um, yeah, the 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 thing of it, I think that that it's really even hard for me to comprehend, given what what things are like now. Is that um, you know it was it was a cultural thing too. You know, so it was so much more a cultural thing that than. It is now where wherein it is more of a business thing, right? Mm. So, so I would I would uh, you know save my paper route uh, nickels and stuff like that, and and I'd buy an album occasionally. But I didn't. I never accumulated a ton of albums. But okay. but you know yeah. you'd hang out at friends' house and at friends' houses, and you know we'd we'd trade albums and stuff like Sweet. that. And, and um, yeah, and the concerts were a lot cheaper. And, and let me just say, you know. The old guy talking about the old days. Mm. The the not only were they cheaper, but they they generally were attended by most people who would go to concerts. Then were just way into the music. It wasn't like they were trying to make the scene, you know, or mm. anything like that. And and you know, there's a number of artists. Uh, unfortunately, not Hendrix, who I saw multiple times, you know, because oh, I just love I love the show, you know. And you know, you'd see them at a big concert hall, you'd see him in a small club, and that was always special. And, and you know, and now that that was probably after Hendrix died, which is why I didn't get to see him a lot, right, because right. I was too young to, to really do that. The Monkees, which was a, a fabricated band, you know, basically to kind of mimic the Beatles, you know, an American Beatles kind of thing, and they had a they had a half hour T V show and they would they would do concerts. Yeah, and it was like and it was silly and, and you know, uh, a couple of them were real musicians but but generally it was just actors playing musicians and, and uh they were on tour, you know, and, and they they were attracting teeny boppers and Hendrix was the warm up act. <laughs> Far out. <laughs> and that was another thing. Production values then, and, and you know, there were, there were a lot of people who were just opportunists. Who, like, like Hendrix's manager, longtime manager, Chaz Chandler, who was a, uh, a bassist, I think, for the for animals. The animals, yeah, yeah. And, and he, um, yeah, he became, he became Hendrix's manager. And he totally sucked, sucked the life <laughs> out, mm. out of Hendrix. He, he's, you know, a lot of people who are vindictive or spiteful would mm. would like to like to really <laughs> somehow stick it to Chandler's estate or something like that but um anyway I'm not like that 
<laughs> but but the, <laughs> good, but, good. but yeah, just to paint a picture of how a bunch of snake oil salesmen in that day, not big yeah. corporations, you know. So in a way, it was a little more organic, but it was also there weren't the protections for people's music and stuff like that, which yeah. is why Hendrix died fairly broke. And they had to market all kinds of posthumous stuff to to you know keep the uh, the leeches happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Man. there's there's a lot more that we will continue to explore about music and economics. It's been a underlying side conversation for the season, and we'll we'll continue yeah. to get more educated about it. And because there's so much to talk about there. Another question for you about listening, just purely li- like listening to music on your own. One thing that I think is such a big deal about Hendrix in particular, but really a lot of music, is the stereo field. And that means like when you're listening to music out of a cell phone right now, as many, many of us do, or out of uh, laptop speakers or something Mm -hmm. basic like that, you're not getting a really wide stereo field. And that means that when an engineer, a recording engineer, records the music, they have selected some instruments and they they can actually move them left or right. And it can be extreme left, extreme right, and anywhere in between to the center. And we'll go over the Does that mean like if you have like two speakers, you move the sound all the way to the left or all the way to the right? Yeah. and, And sometimes I pick that up where it's like, or if you're wearing one headphone... You miss part of the song. You're like, what the heck? Because the guitar is coming from the other headphone or something. And so I'm curious for you, Dad, how often were you listening to music in headphones, in a stereo system at home? How were you... What was the... The, the medium, the physical medium you were listening through. Yeah, you know, cheap little stereo, radio, whatever. The speakers were separated a little more than your speakers are here, mostly. Or, or actually, you know, depending on where, you know, what stage of my life, where I was, what, you know, what the quality of my system was, they'd be on different sides of the room. So you almost always had a yeah. wide stereo field. Yeah, too. yeah. And there, cool. and there was a thing that, yeah, we didn't have uh, phones, but, you know, I had I had headphones, which were mm-hmm. pretty, pretty good. And, and you know, just so long as the, the subject here is... Jimi Hendrix, um, and, and a particular song that I'm sure we'll get to uh, if I quit talking so much. <laughs> but but uh, to use the word pioneer again, he was a pioneer in the in the, what they call it. They call it was a phase shifter. Yeah. And yeah, and yeah. so so you would have <laughs> that kind of thing you know, uh, coming on, uh, you know, from two different speakers, and and yeah, and you do see that effect. You you talked about not having one earphone in, one earbud in, or something like that, and you miss part of the song. I even see, you know, when I when I'll go on, uh, you know, YouTube or whatever to get a uh, to to listen to a version of Hendrix, like the one they put on there. Is kind of mono or whatever. Uh, um, mixed to mono, it, it, yeah. They, 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 yeah, they, they uh, blend the tracks or something like that, and there are pieces missing. And they're, they're certainly not the way Hendrix would have had it <laughs> had it presented. Got like two more questions for you. I okay, think. okay. I got many more answers. What do you like about Jimi Hendrix? Can you be as specific as possible? What you you, you like? know, Hendrix being on the forefront of of making music from everything he listened to everything he he saw something of value in everything in all kinds of music mm-hmm. he, he was on the chitlin circuit you know with some of the early yeah. things and and uh that's where he learned to play the guitar behind his head and and um you know do all kinds of cre- and with his teeth and crazy stuff like that because yeah, he's a showman uh but he was always about exacting standards of his music you know but but here's what i'm finally going to get to answer this question 
Yes, he was a pioneer. But you know what he's about? Here's a guy who never had a lesson, never learned music, learned music theory, didn't even know what notes he was playing, but he's about possibilities. You know, a kid from Seattle with a crazy family, uh, middle class, you know, kind of, uh, who, who just fell in love with the guitar, and he, he became this world icon. And and you know you know whether you're looking at looking for stardom and you know we made a comment mm. to one of your students the other day she's the next Taylor Swift you know and and you made a comment uh, not that stardom's the the thing here no but expression and and reaching people you know he shows you can do it with hard work and and you know maybe a gift back to the nature versus nurture debate yeah. but commitment. Commitment, baby. I love how passionately you feel about that. That's incredible. That's so it, cool. It really is kind of a life philosophy in a lot of ways. Yeah. Beautiful, man. Fucking beautiful. Yeah, beautiful. I got one more question. Okay, I'm ready. Have your preferences for music changed over time? Again, this is tied into one of the themes of the show. I believe there's an implied for me behind every little preference statement we make. Jimi Hendrix is the best for me. Um, might be the best for a lot of other people too. But are there musicians, styles of music, things like that, that you didn't like at one point and came to like? Or maybe that you did like and came to not like? How has your preference for music's changed over time, if at all? You know, you, you sort of... A lot of things change through time. I mean, you know, okay, so what, what was Hendrix... What was my visceral reaction to Hendrix was sex. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's like you're, you're coming yeah. of age here and you, there's that power and there's the mm. science fiction element. And so, so yeah, I was attracted to things like Foxy Lady and, and you know, Purple Haze and stuff like that. Yeah. It, there was rebellion in that. And, and yeah, I'll say the word again, sex. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um, you know, you mellow out. And and the the song we picked today, for example, is is just a, a sweet love song with a lot of creative stuff going on in it. And I'll let you do the real analysis. But right, but uh, cool. yeah, that that's that's probably the main thing. Uh, you know, I don't have a lot of rebel in me anymore. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but uh, yeah, I do appreciate the art and uh, of a lot of stuff. I, I will say that you know I I still am against you know what you could call plastic, you know, overproduced stuff. And, and you know, you probably heard me yesterday that, you know, the tribute band stuff, some of them do just a great job. But but to me, and I think to you, and I don't know about you, Gus, I, I think probably you two, you know, yeah, play a cover, but, but creatively make it your own, you know. Give some of your own expression yeah. to it. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. My, my preference is for covers that that do the song justice or the original justice but yeah you get to put your own put a little it personality in it yeah because because if you try to copy it as close as you can usually you're just not as good as the original and and you leave something to be desired you know for for me but i can i slide in a question before please, we, we check please. this on yeah, yeah what did your uh your dad and your mom think about hendrix and you, your musical taste were they 
because we've talked about Sinatra on this show being a big influence for Tony and me and you, and I know your dad liked the Rat Pack and Sinatra. Did he jive with Hendrix or? Uh... No, <laughs> and, you know that that was that was really. I mean, you know that music was. Uh, a screw you old person kind of <laughs> genre you know it, it was counterculture it was yeah. like saying hey wait a minute old people you, you know you're really just going through the motions here and you're repeating old patterns they needed some hallucinogens yeah. clearly yeah and and mm. and so it was a lot of hendrix's music and music of the time that I was digging, to use the old uh, vernacular, was an in-your-face generation um, kind of thing. And but I didn't, I didn't flaunt it really. Yeah. I mean, they they would be more mad if if I didn't get a haircut or something like that. You know? <laughs> it wasn't like that. I was listening to Hendrix, and I didn't play it real loud in the house to try and you know kill my mother or anything like okay. that. Okay. Okay. <laughs> you know what I was getting at. <laughs> yeah. You were well, diplomatic. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, I know you got to be clean shaven like those Yankees. So. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. <laughs> Thanks so much, Dad, for sharing your thoughts with us, My for pleasure. being real with us, for being passionate with us. That's what it's all about. Yeah, I didn't mean to be too I definitely think listeners happens. to this season um, will will see the, yeah, see the similarities, see the influence that your way of being, your way of thinking has on our way of thinking and being. And it's cool just to put it all here. That's cool for me. Can we yeah. can we do this again next week? Can we just interview you like every week? Uh, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. I, I don't I don't want to horn in on Tony's gig here, uh, but I, I do enjoy it. And anytime you you want a, a limited visit, I'm happy. I'll tell you yeah. one thing that's Come on back. It's not within the scope of this season, but I imagine in future seasons of this show, it might be really interesting to put the implied for me to the test in a way of saying like. Let's take a song that you read, something plastic, something overproduced that you really don't like. Let me do a deep, detailed analysis of it, tie in a bunch of other like musical influences, cool. and see if I could change your opinion about it. You that, know what that, I mean? That's, that's a good idea. And, and you know, uh, if I may uh, go into this with a, a uh, predetermined working hypothesis yeah, on, yeah. on how I'll respond, regardless of what the tune is. Um, to me, it'll be, this is more about the production engineers and the sound engineers than it is about the musician. Mm. And that might be a critical, that, so that's like an element of your preference yeah. for why you would like something yeah. that we would have to explore and perhaps transform in order to actually get you to like something new, I, which is a fascinating aspect of like how your preference might really change. And, and I will save a, a, a response to that for when we actually do this or, yeah, or yeah. for off off mic but um <laughs> may, may i just uh thank you for for having your old man here yeah and, man. and, and can, can i uh just read a 2020 review of a a, a uh, not the whole review just a couple of select lines of a one of hendrix's last concert in july of 1970 yeah yes. bring it on um, so you know 40 was that 40 years after no 50 years after the fact he's talking about the this concert in in maui what might have been the title track of the next Jimi Hendrix record, which is Hey Baby, New Rising Sun, um, blooms with a gorgeous, iridescent guitar tone, like a sentient waterfall. You know, this is, like this is hippie yeah. shit. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and yeah, and, and uh, 
and then it goes on. Effortless guitar heroics abound from the chopped sunshine of your love chords sprinkled into fire to the star-spangled banner, quote, teased in the last moments of Purple Haze. I mean, they were out there, this power trio, just just killing it and, and doing all this creative stuff. And uh, there's one other chord I want to get. Oh, yeah, yeah, Here, here's sort of what I was more than alluding to before. Even on the big hits, duly rendered, Hendrix, at some point in each song, hits a frequency akin to a serotonin release, reminding you why the music is equiv equivocated to the euphoric highs of drugs or sex. And just go near the two-minute mark of, of Maui's version of Voodoo Child's Slight Return when the guitar seems to be shooting down from a mile above the stage. I kept thinking a spaceship was landing, remembers one film cast member in the documentary, and it doesn't sound like stoner hyperbole. So, so, and that's enough of that stuff. But that was what it was. It was this excitement. It was this, wow, what is this stuff that he's playing? And it's beautiful, and it's on time, and it's musical. And it, but it has all these new sounds and new elements that nobody had done before. So, so cool. Fuck yeah. Fucking cool. That's creativity. Let's I dig into it. some of the creativity of this song. Cool. And to preface this Thank too, you. like you said, Jimi Hendrix did and read music wouldn't have wouldn't have labeled his chords and numbers the way that I'm about to do. Right. What I'm about to do is just an analytical tool that I like to use to compare song to song to song to song. We can express all these different songs in the same numeric language, which makes them easy to compare and easy to pick apart and easy to recreate. So that's what we'll do here. Not a way to think about how to make your own song, just a way to think about how this song how it's exists, what it is, yeah. you know. Dad, when you I asked you, suggest for me a Jimi Hendrix song for me to analyze. And you deliberated. You had like four or five different songs written on your whiteboard for a while. You were selecting. And you finally delivered One Rainy Wish from the album Axis Bold as Love. And I believe you said something like, that you chose this song because you don't know anything else like it. Yes, I did say that. And that's an awesome description of this song because it has a lot of very unique elements in terms of its meter, uh, which has to do with its rhythm, and in terms of its key changes. So this song features Mitch Mitchell playing drums, Noel Redding playing bass, Jimi Hendrix, of course, playing guitar, and Eddie Kramer was the recording engineer who was making quite a few interesting, cool contributions through what I mentioned earlier, the panning. And we're going to go through this analysis and then listen to the song. This is a switching it up from how we've usually done it. Cool. Because I theorize that by going through this analysis first, you're actually going to listen and hear the song differently. So... The song comes in with this introduction that I describe as flowing, cascading, and dreamy. Of course, this is a song allegedly about a dream that Hendrix had. And the Mitch Mitchell is playing on the ride cymbals, this really fast, repeated, just rolling his snare, his uh, sticks on this on the ride cymbal. Noel Redding is playing like a repeated, really fast tremolo pattern on the bass on the B flat. And Jimi Hendrix comes in with this E-flat major pentatonic patterns. There's like all these flowing patterns flying down. So I just said a word, pentatonic, which I want to unpack a little bit. Pentatonic, like a pentagon, is a five-pitch scale. There are only five pitches in this scale, and they are these pitches. 
talk a bit about why these five pitches because the pentatonic scale is actually something that can be identified in almost every single culture across the world. Their folk music will very often use pentatonic melodies. And what's significant about pentatonic melodies, what's, I think, how you can explain, like, why, why these particular five notes, it has to do with the physics of music. So anytime we hear one pitch all by itself, we're hearing a vibration. We're hearing a, a displacement of air molecules back and forth at a certain speed, right? This E flat here is what we call 155 hertz, which means the air molecules are moving back and forth 155 times per second, 155 cycles per second. And at the same time that we're hearing that vibration, we're hearing fractions of that vibration and we're hearing multiples of that vibration. The multiples are particularly interesting. That's what makes up the harmonic series that tells us the kind of tone quality of a sound. Depending on the different strength of higher pitches above this fundamental pitch, that's what gives a sound its tone. If I sing, yah, but if Gus sings, yah, oh, that's bad. You were fine. <laughs> You'll be able to tell the difference between my voice and Gus's voice and dad's voice. <laughs> we all sound different singing the same pitch because of the different harmonics and the different strength of those harmonics in our different voices, which is kind of cool. So that harmonic series has a pattern and the strongest, loudest harmonics are an octave above. So the same note, but an octave. That's how you start Purple Haze, by the way. And then the next harmonic is a fifth above that. So these notes are particularly strong, meaning that the movement of a fifth, this interval of a fifth between pitches, is something that almost always sounds consonant. Um, it sounds stable to almost all human ears, no matter what kind of music you listen to. If we move only in fifths from a note, we very quickly get all of the notes from the pentatonic scale. One, two, three, four, five, one, five. Now I'm gonna make this one. One, two, three, four, five, one, five. Now if we take this new fifth we got up above and move it down, these notes next to each other. Now if we take that newest note, one, two, three, four, five, one, two, three, four, five, and put all of these notes next to each other, we have the five notes of the pentatonic scale. So that's just a bit of physical reality of, of how we of how our ears perceive pitch that sort of explains why the pentatonic scale is so common and why it just sounds so fucking good to us all the time. So after this really flowy intro has come to a conclusion, the whole band enter, they pause together and they enter together with Jimmy's voice also starting the lyrics all at the same time. Golden rose, the color of the dream I had. Now, what's significant here, what makes this song different from other songs, is that it's in 3-4 meter. 
What that means is that we've taken the steady beat. Um, steady beats are easy for humans to perceive, just like the harmonic series is actually easy for us to perceive, whether you know it or not. We have this steady boom, 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 boom. If you hear a drummer doing that, you can tap along to it pretty easily. Of course, that might take a little practice considering on who you are, but you can do it. And here, we're starting a new chord after three beats. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. One, two, three. Golden rose, the color of the dream I had. Not too long ago. Then there's these pentatonic patterns that start to sweep us back into the next chord change. So this 3-4 is not super remarkable in terms of all the music of history, but it's quite remarkable in terms of rock and roll, uh, this genre. There's not a lot of rock and roll in 3-4. Most pop music, even for the last like 100 years, is in 4-4 four, four time. Here's an example of how this melody, this uh, song might sound if it was in 4-4. Four, four. Golden rose, the color of the dream I had. So we have four beats there. It adds a little more time for each of those lines. What I love about the three, four for this particular song is that it just keeps driving us along. It keeps moving us through the flow of this dream world, this really colorful dream world that Jimmy is describing to us. Again, this is a theoretical analysis of why Jimmy might have subconsciously just made that choice. Clearly, he, he was most un, it was unlikely that Jimi Hendrix was thinking, let me put this in 3-4 so it'll like carry people along the flow. It's like, that just felt right to him, right? It's a sentient waterfall, basically. He's sentient waterfall, <laughs> right, making choices here. Then, because there's all these cascading pentatonic lines, the bass is being very simple. Because there's so much activity from Mitch Mitchell and Jimi Hendrix on the drums and the guitar. The drums have this pattern of kick, snare, snare. And then also the ride cymbal playing an eighth note pattern. But at the, on the, it's like on the second beat and the third beat, um, we can divide these beats into a bunch of different pieces, into eighth notes, which are dividing in two, one and two and three and. We can divide into sixteenth notes, dividing a beat into four, one yenda, two yenda, three yenda. A lot of times on the yenda of two and then three yenda, there are these cascading pentatonic patterns on the guitar. Plus, Mitch Mitchell starts playing a lot more snare and ride in in rhythmic unison with what Jimmy is playing. So we have this. And that, again, contributes to this song's feeling of just like flowing along through this magical, colorful, colorful world. Then we get to the melody. I'm going to sing the melody on numbers. This is a thing that Gus really likes. And um, this gives you a sense of how much territory the melody is covering. That's another unique thing about this song, not only in terms of rock and roll, but in terms of Jimi Hendrix's songwriting. Think about a song like, um, Purple haze all in my brain Making things that don't seem the same That's only using about three notes and it keeps like staying in that area for a long time. 
This melody is using the whole pentatonic scale over the span of an octave, so it's got a much larger range than some of Jimmy's other melodies and some other rock and roll or pop melodies. Eight six six five six five three two two three one. Eight eight six five six three. Eight eight six five three two two one. So there, he's only using notes from the pentatonic scale in the melody, and he's got this pattern set up where the first phrase starts high, golden rose, the color of the dream I had, and moves all the way down the octave, from eight to one. Then he has a phrase that starts high, not too long ago, but ends on the three instead of the one, kind of feeling a little less finished, setting us up for the next phrase. Misty blue and lilac too. Very similar to the first phrase. It starts high, goes all the way down the octave. Then the fourth phrase is different from all the others. It doesn't start on that high note. It starts in the middle on three. Never to grow old. And then right at the end of holding the word old, he dips down to the six. Old. Because that's the chord that's being played underneath. The chords being played underneath now are the one chord, E flat major, the four chord, A flat major, and the six chord, C minor. It goes from one to four to one to six. Now, at the end of this verse, after a uh, there you were under the tree of song, sleeping so peacefully, in your hand a flower played, waiting there for me. And brief aside, the lyric, in your hand a flower played, yeah, makes me think of everything. It makes me think of sex. <laughs> it makes me think of like, is the flower just sort of like dancing around and playing? Or is the flower playing the way a guitar is playing? Like playing music under the tree of song, waiting there for me. It's like, what a gorgeous sentence you know i just love yeah. it so as they finish with waiting there for me they start repeating that c minor chord four times in a row they just keep hanging out there and then they change in the next section of the song to c major so it's like by repeating this bass note c they've made it feel almost natural and normal to just keep going in that new key plays this big bended note. I have never seen your face before. And then here they um, move into 4-4. Four, four. So this section of the song feels a lot more like bluesy rock than the first section. Would you say this is like, you know, in a, in a jazz tune, you would, you would be switching to a more of a swing kind of thing. Is that not quite correct then? You're thinking in a jazz tune, you might like switch to swing for a bigger section of the song. The, and the, you this sort of has a little swing flavor to it, if you ask me. But you could say that it has swing flavor, although there are no swung eighth notes or swung sixteenth notes. Might just be the three four feel, like because swing is based on like dividing the beat into groups of three. Right, right. The three four, I think, 
Remind of swing? 16 kind yeah. of thing. Right, right. Nice. Okay, good observation. Other things that happen in this section of the song, um, up until this point, Jimmy's voice has been panned pretty far to the left, even, um, which uh, is very out of character with the music of today, where it's much more of a trend to have vocals dead center. So we really focus on them. Jimmy's voice is panned pretty far off to the left for most of this early section of the song. In this next section, I have never, his voice is doubled left and right. And I believe what's happening here, I'm still new to audio engineering, but I'm learning more all the time, is that his voice is delayed, which means like a copy of his voice is played just a few milliseconds later. And that copy is played in the right channel now. So all of a sudden, now we're hearing Jimmy's voice on both sides of us for the first time. And I tell you what, if you listen to this in stereo, which listeners, please listen to music in stereo. It will fucking blow your mind. <laughs> it's like you can listen to this song and you can love it. And then you can listen to it in stereo and you're transported into this dream world. You're like taken in there, right? Because it's so big and it's so encompassing when you hear it, when you hear that change, right? Later in the song, too, about panning, Jimmy at the end is talking about, it was only a dream, and there were 11 moons. And his voice now, Eddie Kramer is moving Jimmy's voice back and forth across the stereo field at this point, like mid-sentence. It's Whoa. moving left to right, almost like you're with Jimmy, just turning your head everywhere, looking at the wondrous stuff around you, right? It's so cool. So also here, the everybody's getting bigger. There's more active bass lines, like a boom, 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 boom. And the drums are adding more tom drum action. Again here, Jimmy is almost never just strumming chords for you. He's singing and then playing another melody with his guitar to fill in the space. Like, I have never seen your face before. So the guitar starts going. lines accenting and filling in space between his vocal which is just another it's another staple of jimmy i think like his accompaniment to his voice is not simple it's so he's able to <laughs> focus on so many different things at once of course he could you know in the studio yeah. layer these things but you hear him live and he's doing right, the same right. shit it's like yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, i've always been amazed by um guitar or keyboard players who can play one thing and at the same time sing yeah. Something that uh, must be a different track in their brain. What about like uh, Brother Gus, who was playing the drums in his band Aggression with yeah, Hill, right, and singing right. lead at the same time? Look, right? I appreciate credit, but none of my beats were very complicated <laughs> underneath the vocals. And, and as long as we're complimenting each other, I want to say that I love that you're doing a little bit of your own interpretation of, of this song. And I love the breakdown, of course, too. Um, when we hear Jimmy do it, I'm gonna tell you right at that right at that break where he goes into four four, you're getting one of the lyrics wrong. Yep, yep. Uh, <laughs> I, have I have never, never laid eyes on you. Yeah, Sorry, you I have it written down right here. I'm just fucking it up. No, it's a, no, it's not a screw up. It's not a screw up. But but the language, uh, as we said before, is important, and and that's more of a '60s thing. I have never laid eyes on you, or whatever, laid eyes okay. on her. Yeah, that might be more '60s parlance, huh? Yeah. yeah. Then finally, you get through this big section. Another thing that really defies categorization about this song is at first I wanted to call the Golden Rose section the verse, and I wanted to call I Have Never Laid Eyes on You section the chorus. But typically, 
a chorus is a section of the song that's repeated. Mm -hmm. And this I have never laid eyes on you section happens just once. They never come back to it. It just happens mm -hmm. really early. They come back to the golden rose section over and over. But another feature of the chorus to my modern listening mind is that the chorus is, is big and full and, and uh, powerful. But that's not the, the vibe of the Golden Rose section. It's, it's gentle, it's cascading, it's flowing ahead. And so this whole song, it, it continues again to be unlike a lot of other Jimmy songs and, and other songs generally. So they go back to their, what I'll call the A section, the Golden Rose section. They repeat it twice, some more repetitions on the C minor chord at the end. And then the bass player just slides down a half step to B. We have this. Jimmy starts using not the E flat pentatonic scale, but the E major pentatonic scale. So while the bass slides down a half step, Jimmy's harmonic language slides up a half step. And again, I wrote down here, this song just flows forever. It's like this, there's something about the, the contrary motion there, the constant movement of pentatonic lines. It just, it just keeps traveling, you know? It's like this dream world is infinite, you know? Timeless. It's timeless. This timeless day, right? I think that's plenty of context to get us into a full listen through. And we are going to listen on my nice stereo system. I suggest anyone listening out there in the universe, past, present, or future, that you get yourself a stereo system. Stop the podcast right now. Go go buy a stereo system. Come back to this in like a couple weeks, whenever you got it set up, and listen to One Rainy Wish as we go on. Fade out. I feel like the fade out is something we don't get a lot in music anymore. Yeah, I guess not. And that's, of course, maybe that's not true. Essentially, uh, impossible to do live. Hey, I like the uh, I like the analysis first and then the song because I picked up on a lot. You know, the stuff you were telling us about. Yeah, it's a cool it's a cool way to listen, right? If you're looking for more, if you're looking for more meat, if you're looking for more protein out of your music, <laughs> like. Knowing knowing what to listen for, knowing how to make sense of what you're listening to is not necessarily intuitive for all of us. You know, it's like there's there's always details you could dig into and, and get more out of. It's it's so fun to learn about how is this song constructed, what's in it, and that changes what you hear, you know? So did, did uh, I got to ask Dad, did you hear anything new? Or? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, um, yes, uh you know, I, I obviously, you know, I recommended this song or I requested this song because it just seemed so different to me in a lot of ways. And I know a little bit about music and, and you know, I, I, I had one wrong interpretation on that <laughs> non-chorus, you know, that uh, I didn't notice that it changed to four there. Four four. Yeah, it's not very noticeable. I, I mean, that's a yeah. very big thing right there. But, but what I'm going to say is um, parallel to your musical analysis... You know, using 
conventional music terminology and ideas and stuff. I think for, um, you know, a hack like me, uh, you know, to be a little modest, though, maybe, <laughs> but, but um, or, or for people who don't know anything about music, um, there's the painting or the, or, you know, the imagery in there is, it sounds like it would be, this is sort of what he thinks a dream would sound like, yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, that's apart from the lyrics. Yeah, you know, and I, I described it to you as, you know, he's doing this nice lilting uh, vocal melody, and, and then there's all this cascading chords, you know, coming down there. So that gets back to the Scythian waterfall thing. Um, and, and yeah, and, and then the, the timeless aspect of it, or the, you know, um, what does he say? Yeah, there's something else in there that indicates uh, timelessness or whatever. Or, well, he you know, says, I've never laid eyes on you. Not before this timeless day. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. but even even beyond that, there's another lyric that that speaks to, uh, you know, it's not normal never, time. Never to grow old, too. Misty blue and lilac. Too. That that's never to grow there old. might be yet another one, and and uh, <laughs> but but yeah, <laughs> that, that, but yeah. So this gets into, and now now I'm doing a, a hack analysis of my own, the music and the lyrics. And, and, you know, the lyrics are, you know, Hendrix was influenced a lot by Bob Dylan. He loved Bob Dylan's mm-hmm. poetic approach mm-hmm. to lyrics, right? And, you know, Hendrix didn't have the education, the erudition to do something really um, intellectual. He, was, he had a very high IQ, but he didn't have the education to do, like, intellectual type poetry, but but there's there is there his his lyrics are are like you know kind of perfectly blended with and and he's also doing it with his music at the same time you know and yeah. and that that yeah that this is a pylon answer to why you know I I still to why you like him yeah. yeah yeah and I do believe that analysis can help you define why you like something and the more you know why you like something you know, the more stuff maybe you can like. There you go. Lastly today, I'm going to sinatra this song. This is a thing we do on the show. Sacrilege! <laughs> <laughs> I actually want to talk about the sinatra process with you, my father, because so much of my early singing experience and, like, and my joy of singing was based on singing along to Sinatra. And often I still today have an easier time singing in the style of Sinatra than I do, for example, singing in the style of Jimmy, which is very, his style of singing is more, is more visceral, more chaotic, more shouted sometimes. More passionate. More passionate, perhaps. So it's fun for me to try and take a song like this and put it in a vocal styling that feels more comfortable for me. At the same time, something I've said to Gus and what you just said jokingly about sacrilege, right? It's important, it's important to me always to make these Sinatrifications real, real standalone pieces is what I'm trying to create a world that exists by itself. You know, a, a corridor down this dream world where things are still connected. But I'm certainly not trying to like detract from or make fun of anything in, in this style and say that a different style is better. It's f- This is a creative outlet for me, actually, just to, to have fun. And so with that, right away, my first challenge here was thinking about, what am I going to do with the meter? Am I going to have this be in 3-4 and then change to 4-4 four, four, or just 4-4? Four, four? Just Because I was thinking about 
how often does a Frank Sinatra song change meter in the middle of it, right? And so I actually did elect to put this in 3-4 the whole entire time. Mm. But I've also extended the amount of time each chord in the Golden Rose section lasts to be two measures of three instead of one measure of three, which almost has the effect of making the whole thing feel like a really slow four meter that's divided into three if that makes sense it's like uh-huh. a one two three two two three three two three four kind of waltzy three yeah it's gonna be kind of waltzy and so that's what ended I up didn't happening say here. <laughs> i kept a lot of all the key change energy and even kind of created a key change of my own to end the song later on and i hope you enjoy this sinatrification a lot guys that's fun for me to do and fun to have an audience for <laughs> thanks for listening to our show i'm gonna go through some credits here that i wrote down thanks for listening consider supporting us on patreon you can go to patreon.com philosophically sound that's a website where you could give us as little as a dollar a month to support the work that we're doing Now, before you consider supporting us, I would like to ask you to consider supporting music that you don't yet know. I actually think if you really, really like this show, what you should do first is get a suggestion from a friend, for a musician you've never heard of, or maybe you think you would like, and buy their album. 
buy their album, spend that money. Whoa. Don't just listen to them on Spotify, buy their album. I know it's a big suggestion. Whoa. And play it on what? But, and play it on your fancy stereo system. That's another thing. Before giving us a dollar a month, consider investing in a really nice way to listen to music. Because again, like you said, Dad, music is this powerful language, this tool with which you can perhaps transform your mind, transform your whole being, right? So that's what I want this podcast, what I want this show, this mission to be about primarily. So if you've done all that, then give us some money too, and we can <laughs> and we can keep doing this for more people. We can we can expand our reach. We can do more research. We can spend more money on guests. Um, I, I've talked to some people about doing research for the show. We could pay them a salary if you start to support us on Patreon, and and we can really get some excellent things put together for how we could be more cooperative humans and better listeners. We could know how to pronounce names. Yeah, we could do research about pronouncing things. And, and like, <laughs> remember facts. And, you know, Tony's not only the, the, the main man on this thing, but he's the sound engineer, you know, and uh, who knows, maybe he'll help to do some of that. Yep, people could edit this for us, freeing us up for more time. So if you believe in these in these ideas, you you know what you can do. If you do this, write us an email about it too. If you buy an album you never heard us, write us an email at philosophicallysoundpodcast at gmail.com. You could also leave a review of our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Now, there's a theme song to this show, and in our podcast feed, there are three different episodes called Tips for Singing the Theme, Tips for Recording the Theme, and then just the theme song itself. I'm honestly inviting you, listener, to record your voice singing our theme song, and I'll start to blend all those voices into the theme song as the show continues to grow. I think it would be a really cool thing to hear that theme song continuously transform as we, um, you know, affect more and more listeners. And finally, another question for you, listener, that might engage you and get you to email us. What do you think is the underlying form of the music you currently like in the way that circles and squares and triangles are all limited, their boundaries? What's the underlying form of music that you like? Think deeply and philosophically about what it is you like and, and why it is. Finally, Philosophically Sound is researched, produced, and recorded by Gus and Tony. Audio editing and musical analysis by Tony. Thank you so much, Father, for being here and talking to us today. It's just so great to, to pick your brain and to get your get your passion recorded and, and set to set to music. Yeah, don't embarrass me. <laughs> Cut out the really bad part. <laughs> <laughs> and last thing you need to say that's with us. Oh, if I could say it. All right. We, we are, are fucking professionals. professionals. That's episode yes. five.